Hi, CityCast listeners. Are shopping malls dying? Or are they more alive here than ever? Today, I am talking about malls with CityCast Houston architectural contributor Alan West and with Alexandra Lang, author of Meet Me by the Fountain, an inside history of the mall. It is Wednesday, August 10th, 2022. I'm Lisa Gray, and this is CityCast Houston. So let's get started by talking about malls. Alexandra, you say that shopping malls have been dying for the past 40 years. Can you unpack that statement a little bit? You know, I see plenty of people shopping at the Galleria. Yes, yes. Well, it's actually lucky for you in Houston, you have such a prime example of a living mall. So I feel like maybe Houstonians (laughs) are a little less charmed by the narrative that all malls are dying. I mean, I can hope because like, that's kind of the first question from a lot of people I've been getting, aren't malls dead? And it's like, well, no, some malls are dying, (laughs) but certainly not all. And when I say in the book that malls have been dying for the past 40 years, I'm basically saying I have read the mall is dead headlines from various newspaper business sections, like harking back to the 1980s, because at various points, the mall was going to die because of e-commerce. The mall was going to die because there were too many malls. The mall was going to die Uh, because of the recession and the pandemic and the pandemic. So all of these things are factors, but it, the mall is a much hardier thing than, than business writers (laughs) thought it was because the mall is actually responding to human needs. Humans don't change that much. And, uh, the successful Mm -hmm. malls have managed to stay with the times and keep fulfilling people's needs. So. What needs are those? I mean, do I really need Build-A-Bear <laughs> Workshop and like sugary pretzels? So, I mean, the the thing about the mall that I think makes it durable is that desire for human connection and the fact that we do all need to shop, even if we should probably be shopping less. And so if you can combine the desire for human connection and really nice architecture and your errands, like, doesn't that make your whole day a more pleasant experience? I mean, that that's really the original vision of the mall. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the vision that, you know, smart mall owners, like, should get back to and, and continuously update so that people can have that experience. Yeah. Alan, what are your thoughts on the mall? Do you disdain malls? No, I don't disdain malls. I, you know, I wanted to ask Alexandra about this, actually, because, you know, in her book, there's a sense that you kind of enjoyed being a teenager and going to the mall, which contrasts with my experience. And I grew up in a small town. We didn't have a mall. So when we went to the mall, you know, my mom would drive us. It was an excursion. And the mall was the place for for little Alan to prove that he wasn't as good as other people. (laughs) It's hard being a teenager. (laughs) Right, but you have teenagers now and you've often written about like how are cities, how can cities accommodate the needs for teenagers? They want to gather, sometimes they want to be a little rowdy, they want to be like close enough to parents, but out of sight. And so like for you, I think the mall kind of combines this other interest, like the mall is really one of the places in cities where teenagers can be as problematic as surveillance capitalism has tried to make it. Yeah, well, in truth, 
the mall is actually a good model of what kinds of spaces teenagers want. And I mean, I think what you might be trying to say, Alan, is like, what about the teenager that isn't like happy and well-adjusted and like part of a group that they're comfortable in? And I think some mall stores, I feel like we're trying to serve that. With the arcades? Yeah, the arcades and also (laughs) stores like Hot Topic, which were national brands, but were also seen as alternative. Well, the mall for me, I mean, it still had like walls and dark corners. You know, I was it had everything I needed. <laughs> but you're sort of, you know, you talked a lot about like staircases and atriums and food courts where, you know, kids could sort of perch at different levels. And, you know, they could get a big wide view of, of other kids approaching. So they were ready with their sort of snide comments and <laughs> social commentary and things like that. I think of a place like Houston, like where, Lisa, would you have been comfortable letting your kids go out of earshot and eyeshot? Right. Where can they roam? Other than you, McDonald's, Galleria, right. Right. I mean, parks, if they want to go to parks. But this sort of, yeah, this in-between space that is sort of free and sort mm-hmm. of safe at the same time, where there's a limit to how much trouble you'll get into. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of great. Also, it's air-conditioned. This awful summer is really important. Mm-hmm. Which is so important in Texas. I mean, and, and, you know, climate control is such an important part of mall history. Like, I really think it's important that, you know, the first enclosed mall was in Minnesota, which is, you know, climate control against winter. But then thereafter, Texas really goes all in on the mall. And that's, you know, climate control against the heat and humidity. So the, those are places that indoor spaces really thrive because outdoors is so unpleasant so much of yeah. the time. And the Galleria, our sort of Ur Mall, is like so great at denying the outdoors. You know, we have an ice rink in the middle of Texas, <laughs> which, yeah, you know, as, as sort of goofy as it is, I, I kind of love that still. Yeah, I think the ice rink shows tremendous showmanship on the part of Gerald Hines, which you already sort of know from his larger portfolio of of works that he developed. Gerald Hines, the developer behind the Galleria. Yeah, yeah. Um, So, yeah, the idea of bringing an ice rink to Texas all year round is just kind of like, look what I can do. Like, look what I'm giving (laughs) you. Here is this unique thing. And I really Mm -hmm. think that's the same spirit that eventually leads to the roller coaster in the middle of the Mall of America. But the the ice rink is slightly classier, shall we say. And I Uh think part of the whole mystique of the Galleria is that it has museum quality, you know, very like classical and classy architecture that when you're in the Galleria, you feel like you are in this modernist pinnacle. It's the signage is relatively tasteful. You know, even the gardens outside. The last time I was there, I took pictures of one of the landscaped areas outside the Neiman Marcus and was like, who designed this? Like, I know this was mm-hmm. designed by a famous landscape architect. <laughs> and it was um, Sasaki Walker and partners who are oh, yeah. among the mm-hmm. most famous modernist landscape architects. Like you can just you can just feel the design sensibility there in a way that is definitely not true of all malls. But that was part of the allure of the Galleria in terms of drawing investment and drawing people to, you know, have their conferences at the hotel. Yeah.
one of my complaints about malls is that so many of them seem indistinguishable from one another. There's not a sense of place. It is still a place to be, and it's safe and it's air-conditioned, and I understand why people go there. But I feel that lack, that there's not an individual vision or a sense that these things should be different. Yeah, and I I think that something that is definitely um, has happened since the 1990s when there was a lot of consolidation in mall ownership and also consolidation of department stores. Um, mm-hmm. So now everywhere had a Macy's rather than there being specific Southern chains of department stores. So there, in fact, like was a great homogenization of what was offered at the malls and who was running the malls. And yeah, I think that really cut down on the sense of discovery and the sense of place that more malls used to have. Yeah. Um, I've also also been interested in the way that so many malls now are trying to embrace the idea of walkability and sort of being a European town shopping experience. So they're not enclosed necessarily. And I think in the Houston area, like the peak of that is in Sugarland, where the city hall is actually part of this walkable mall. Have you seen that in other places? It's actually a bronze a bronze statue of two young white girls shooting selfies. Oh, my God. A monument to, to the selfies. <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. It is a moment. Truly iconic. <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't even know what to say about that. You have to send me a picture about that. But the... Um, the the outdoor mall that's really like an indoor mall with the roof taken off was another mm-hmm. one of those kind of like how do we refresh the mall trends um which uh retailers refer to as a lifestyle center and those mm-hmm. really gained popularity starting circa 2000 and what i find interesting about them is that they're all pretty basic in their underlying architecture, but often they will have a nod to the place that they are in with some, you know, fancy temple fronts or like red brick <laughs> if it's in a red brick area. I don't know what the styling of the Sugarland version is, but I wonder if it doesn't have some kind of, you know, Texas town square little oh, pieces yes. of architecture stuck you on. nailed yeah. it. Yeah. Right in front of that city okay. hall, there's a giant fountain with like rearing horses that supposedly right. is yeah. from right. old Western piece of history. So, right. Yes. Within view <laughs> of the Starbucks and the city hall. and Yeah. Yeah. And I think ultimately it's good to have public offices as part of malls uh, because that both makes them more explicitly in in some places, a public space, and also it broadens the appeal or, or broadens the reasons that you would want to go there and the errands you can take care of while you're there. Yeah. But that mix of uses, I think, is one thing you touch on in the book as, as, a, as a possible way forward, right? You quote a developer who says something like, you know, you need to provide an experience that's worth going to. And so if it's just a Macy's, if it's just an Auntie Anne's, that's a little bleak, right? Um, you can get that in any direction in Houston. But some of the innovations you're talking about, it's the food court at like Hudson Yards, or it's it's you know converting an old department store to maybe a library or a playground or offices or something. So there's the, the, the mix of uses is even more uh, mixy 
Right. Right. I mean, that's kind of the one way forward. Definitely. Because I think retail in the form of essentially clothes shopping, which was this tremendous engine for so many malls for so long, like that's the kind of retail that um, has been most decimated by internet shopping, which has Mm -hmm. gone up during the pandemic. And while I think that a lot of people are actually desperate to, you know, try on clothes in a dressing room and not have to send back a million packages, um, it is not as special as it used to be due to this mass homogenization. So I think, yeah, for malls to go forward, they need to be mixed use again, more like the downtowns that they were originally based on. Um, The other thing that I think might help malls come back is co-working spaces. If more people are working from home, they don't necessarily want to work from their houses and their houses Mm -hmm. may not be big enough. But what about a desk that's closer to your home that you don't have to go all the way downtown to have? Um, Because I think, you know, suburbs are urbanizing and co-working closer to uh, residential centers is something that I can definitely see being part of the post-pandemic development. So there was there was one of the sweetest moments in the book. You were talking about the community of like mall walkers. And I forget exactly which mall, but there was a uh, an older man who talked about when he was doing his laps, you know, he would sort of window shop. And he said, well, yeah, I do it. But I always know when I'm going to get my wife for her birthday because <laughs> he's constantly you know, <laughs> picking it from store to store. And I think that there's something in that that to me was really it's just really sweet. And it's easy to, I think, to be grouchy about malls, but like there's there's something sticky there that that makes them um, just part of American life. And I, I wondered if there was an anecdote that you had uncovered or that maybe was a favorite of yours, even if it didn't make it into the book, that sort of exemplifies how how much these are parts of, of people's communities. Yeah, and the mall workers are a great example of how malls aren't, just about making money, right? Because mall walkers go to the mall usually at nine o'clock before most most of the stores are open. So he's window shopping because he can't actually buy the gift yet. And he's <laughs> right, kind right. of, you know, processing that information subconsciously while he walks with his friends in an enclosed indoor space that, you know, has bathrooms and has a smooth sidewalk. And at the end, you know, maybe they all sit down and, and get a coffee at the Starbucks or something like that. So, you know, minimal purchase. But one of the most poignant stories for me was um, hearing from a friend of mine that her parents were devoted mall walkers in their New Jersey suburb. And when their mall closed for the pandemic, they went back to the mall and started just walking in the parking lot because even the parking lot was better maintained and a like better quality surface than any of the sidewalks in their town. So number one, they had this connection, this kind of like morning routine that was a healthy, you know, healthy routine with the mall. So they wanted to be at the mall, even though the mall was closed. But then it was also just an indictment of the public infrastructure where they are, that they didn't have another option. You know, when people say like, well, isn't it too bad that, you know, people have to go to the mall for this kind of pedestrian space. I say, yes, it is. But, you know, in the meantime, it's great that we have this alternative because there are a lot of people that are healthier and happier because of it. All right. Well, this has been great. 
Thanks, both of y'all. Sure. It was really nice to talk to you both. Yeah, it's wonderful. That was Alan West and Alexandra Lang. We will have a link to Alexandra's book, Meet Me by the Fountain, in our show notes. Now, I am here with lead producer Dina Kespa. Dina, what other news is happening around Houston today? Thanks, Lisa. All right, y'all. Here's what I was catching up on today. Houston ISD has just approved the largest teacher pay raise ever. Now, HISD is expecting budget deficits in the coming years. One includes a $31 million deficit that's projected for the fiscal year of 2022-2023. Now, the first move the district wanted to make was adopt the 2022-2023 budget. Now, that budget included this juicy 11% bump in pay on average for all district teachers. That meant that, you know, the starting pay for a new teacher roughly increased by more than 8%. Now, one thing that I read is that this was all made possible because of a one-time federal COVID relief fund that was through the Federal Elementary and Secondary School Emergency Relief Program. So this means that district leaders are thinking of ways that they can possibly save some money in other areas. This could mean cuts to central office funding and even potentially the consolidation of schools. That is it for our show today. Follow us on Twitter. We are at CityCast Houston. We'll be back tomorrow. Talk with you then. Bye. Alan, anything else you think we really need? Or I mean, yeah, I had like I could read you passages from your book. That I, <laughs> uh, I don't know if I want you to read. <laughs> On page one seventy four, you wrote, "Talk more about that." <laughs>